0: Hey everybody, my name is Alex. I'm coming at you straight from the perch, and this is Lunchbox Radio. Now, before I get started into what we will talk be talking about today, which if you heard the last episode, you would already know what we're talking about today. I wanna I want to herald the reemergence of anti of anti capitalism Alex because some of you may have noticed. There's been some new shows on Crunchyroll as of late. And that is because they are finally merging Crunchyroll and Funimation. However, for many, 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 many many months, since, since Sony, who is the owner of Funimation, purchased Crunchyroll... People have been speculating about when, essentially, Crunchyroll would disappear. But, hilariously, it just so happened that it went in reverse. Funimation is disappearing, and that's for a bunch of different reasons. And I'll get into that probably on the Sunday edition. But the reason why I'm saying anti-capitalism, Alex, is, is coming is, is riding back into town is because... I feel it necessary, man. Like, I wish I didn't feel like I needed to do this every time. But I definitely do. I promise you I definitely do. Now, on a different um, economics-fueled bender, let's talk about what we're talking about this week. And that is a little show that's getting a Um readaptation. I don't even know if it's a remake, but it's a, another adaptation. I'm going to call it a re And that show is Spice and Wolf. Well, Spice Wolf is of an odd ilk it is the kind of it's the kind of show that we would get before the, the isekaitis set into the bones of the anime world and what I mean by that is if you look at Spice and Wolf as what it is, which is essentially a, a medieval economic themed <laughs> Sorry, a medieval economic-themed romance show. I, I, it, it, if you look at that in context of what those zo- of what those kinds of shows of what those descriptors could mean in a different in a different era, meaning of more now and less early aughts or early to mid aughts, um, then you get, inevitably, an isekai show. You get a show that is less... like, sword and sorcery and more trapped in a video game kind of scenario just because of the way that the industry has moved and, like, the way that the industry believes fans want shows to be. And one of the big things about that makes um, Spice and Wolf work so well, is that it is unassailably a show that takes place in a medieval time setting. And and, a key, and in a key way, not a medieval time setting that is couched in game logic. If you look at um, something like jobless, like Mashoko Tensei, Jobless Reincarnation, for example, so much of that show is contextualized, very, very smartly and very skillfully by a kind of video gamey logic. When Rudius is a kid first learning how to use magic, the way he kind of figures out how to use um, wor- worthless incantation is a very kind of video gamey progression scenario. But going beyond that, the magic system in there in that show is is very it is very one to one kind of a video game net magic system. even Rudius says that in his internal monologue to himself. he kind of implies that, and he in the beginning of the show, he talks in a very like, I've played a lot of these medieval style rpgs before this is how it went in this i wonder if it'll, if that's how it goes in in like the world i popped into and that's true in like every single isekai anime but the thing that makes the thing that makes spice and wolf feel different from that if you've never seen it is the like occurrence of magic is very rare. Like that kind of like actual mysticism magic is very rare and it's very it's very costly and it's a big deal when it happens in the show. It do does, it doesn't happen all the time in the show. In fact it's usually reserved for like big grand gestures and like finale and like arc finale moments in Spice and Wolf. But before we get there, I want to talk about, um, Lawrence, um, who like Lawrence is the, is the whitest white guy. And it's, it's very funny to me because I keep, I hear Lawrence and then I immediately go, Larry, <laughs> um, which if you've listened to the uncanny curves, um, which we are currently taking a break because of technical issues there. Um, the Uncanny Third podcast used to include a guy named Larry that both me and Lauren know. So, hi, Larry. Um, but with that said, Lawrence is like is a traveling merchant in the way that traveling merchants used to exist in medieval times before, you know, you could... You could... Be even a door-to-door salesman, and I—I I actually, I actually have a um, family member who used to do something very similar to Lawrence, do, to what Lawrence does in the show. But he used to only do it for bikes and bike pro- products, kind of like propane and propane accessories, but with bikes. Um, and the way he makes his living is all revolving around kind of um not kind of actually like actual medieval economics and medieval economics theory and like debt and profit and loss and all this other stuff and the show goes out of its way to explain just enough of it so like you can have fun and participate but if there was if there was a first flaw that I would point out with this show is that it uses that system sometimes to to create tension, but it doesn't explain what happened. And it doesn't... It doesn't say, okay... Um, so, spoiler for Spice and Wolf, by the way, because I'm going to need to explain some stuff here. The... Finale of the first season kicks off with um, Lawrence. Buying a bunch of arms, buying a bunch of weapons and armor, and he states in when he buys them because Holo, the main, the other main character, the the female love interest in this thing, ultimately asks like, "Why? Why? Why are you buying like a ton of weapons? Like enough weapons to the point where like you're buying them on credit?" which is a key point. And he says, because there's always a good there's always a good um, market for arms. Like people always need weapons. People always be fighting. It's the mid it's it's like the dark it's medieval times. People always be fighting. And the put and one thing leads to another and he finds out that The market for arms has collapsed. Now, if you know anything about just the way the world goes in actual, like, human history, the market for weapons never disappears, really. Like, you're either fighting nature and, like, all form of animal or you're fighting people. But there's always a use for weapons. And this is before the time of, like, handheld guns and muskets and stuff. So, it's mostly, like, you know, axes and swords and, like, armor plating and stuff like that. There's always a a market for that. There will always be a market for that. So, the reason why they did this, the reason why they made it, why they made this happen, is so they could create tension and, like, show the character of Lawrence in a way they'd never shown before and by extension, you know, show how that affects his relationship with Holo, who I'll back up to all this, back up to the beginning of this story in a second. But also eventually so they could finally involve the church in a certain way. So the reason why I'm telling you this up front is because that's where you get to at the end of the first season um but and that's kind of what you get to at the end of the second a version of that is what you get to at the end of the second season too so the beginning of this story is of spice and wolf it shows lauren's rolling into a town that is a rare town that is a pagan that isn't a rare town but it's a pagan village that worships this wolf god that has given them a bountiful harvest of wheat for generations. And they worship this wolf god named Holo. And the deal with the town is they're about to engage in this big, they're like in the middle of this big festival and the 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 woman who chopped down the who chopped down the last Bundle of wheat, has to be the, has to be the wolf goddess for like a night, and basically she gets locked in, she gets locked in a barn, where she just like she sleeps, she sleeps on on a barn in a barn, and like that's kind of what the deal is, and then there's a big parade that she's got to like wear a mask for, but the. The idea of the town is that the town is modernizing and they're trying to modern themselves out of, like, the pagan tradition and they're trying to leave the old ways behind. And one of the things that you learn in art history is that there's a continu- there's like a time continuum that exists and at some point the church comes into being. Like, the church be- be- gains power in a way that it didn't have before. And there's a brief period of time, really in the Middle Ages, where there are some groups of people who still worship old forgotten gods. And what I mean by old forgotten gods, they worship these local or regional fables that say like, for example, uh, Decades ago, like generations ago, a young man made a and this is the one and this is the one from Spice and Wolf, a young man made a pact with a deity who existed as a giant wolf and that giant wolf, Holo, agreed to pr- provide a bountiful harvest for as long as the pact was honored and holo was given like rain over the wheat field and how everything worked and very carefully always managed it so carefully that the the land could rest as she says at some at one point but that they would always survive and the lean years would not be as bad as they could be but the bountiful years would be incredible. But, and she says in this, she says, but the people didn't understand that. The people of the village don't understand that, like, I need to let the world, the the earth rest so it can keep producing in the way that it's been producing. And over time, the church had grown up kind of around them and the church like, cast its eye on them, like, why don't you join the true, why don't you believe in the one true Christian God? And people's relationship with the church has changed and has not changed in a bunch of very important ways since medieval times and since the origin of the church and the origin of Christianity and all this stuff. But a thing that was true in, like, the, in medieval times, I feel like I'm talking about the scene park attraction where you can call your, wait- your waitress a wench, um, is that the church was a fact of life that you had to deal with. And, like, crossing the church was not okay, and the church did very underhanded things to keep itself in power. That's what. part of the reason why the Catholic Church is the way it is now. Is that they did things like they control, like they engaged in serious currency manipulation. They, you know, con- controlled the value of that currency based on whether or not they blessed it or not, and and who had it and who, and like what lords did, how lords responded. They controls people by saying anybody who questions the church or anybody who does something the church says shouldn't be done is a pagan witch witch or wizard and should be put to death. These are all real things that the church did. And so what the result is, if there are people who are like devoutly religious and everybody uses like mate may God's grace be with us in the way like I hope we're lucky kind of thing but in day to day you live a medieval life of like not that good unless you're a, lord, a, a regional lord or nobility or you have an, like an incomparable amount of money People, people dream. It just as there are some people who dream it is now is to open up a shop, and like make it, and like and like get by by having a shop, or be able to join the community because they have a shop in a town or city. And the long and short of it is, is that the church is a huge power breaker, broker and a huge, like, controller of power, along with nobles, who you, only, who you only meet one of in Spice and Wolf, as far as I remember. Um, and that's very important that you only meet one of them. And you meet them in a way that's, like, not a contextual thing. Like, not, not a thing that matters to the story, because once you get them, if you were to get that noble involved, then it would be a whole different ballgame. But for the, enti- for the entire first season, the church is this kind of lingering thing in the background. And really the power brokers you meet are people at the heads of these giant regional trade guilds. Uh, guild um, branches. Um, there's a, a a trade guild named Lowen Trading. There's um another one so the the first one you encounter, and they are all they're all trying to make money and they're doing all these deals for like major amounts of all kinds of things, like major amounts of furs, major amounts of wheat. Like, big things, and they're very clearly, like, the economic engine of the Middle East. And this was, this was most likely a true thing. And so, you enter that in that one of your two main characters, Holo, is the kind of, it's the kind of fabled divine goddess who pagan villages might did pray to, only she has lost the favor of the village she made a contract with and through story things, through like story things and specifics about that myth, she ends up going with Lawrence to go back to her home in the north. And at first she's like really cocky, she's really kind of like just slightly kind of full of herself. But then you see why she's full of herself, and you see that she's full of herself because she's lonely and she's intentionally in ways trying to push people away, including Lawrence, because she's afraid they're going to leave anyway, because you're left to, you're left to assume that like, you are when you meet her and when you comment on the theories, proper. You're seeing the tail end of these villagers' disbelief of her. Disbelief in her. You're not seeing the beginning of it. You're seeing, like, the very end. Like, uh, that festival is only going to be put on for another year or two. And ultimately, that that comes to bear in kind of the middle of the series where... Of like, local merchant girl, Chloe, like, gets the band together and goes after Holo and, and Lawrence. And is prepared to give Holo to the church. To be rid of, to be rid of her existence at all. To move, to move past believing in, like, an archaic god and then they would be able to, like, commit themselves to the... Catholic churches the church would come in and they'd build a church building and like they'd be a real town (laughs) in their minds and that's thwarted by like economic dealings and cleverness by both Holo and um, Lawrence and their like team of people and like the people they have around them and their friends and like close contacts and stuff But, like I said, if you've been paying attention for this, like, rambling 22 minutes I've been talking, the church is always lingering in the background of this show. Not just because they're a fact of life, but because they're a direct threat to Holo, specifically. The thing with the church is, is, like... And you're led to believe that this has happened to other kind of minor deities over over the years is that if they see someone like Holo who is who's a fox girl, she's a she, she's she's a monster girl like she's got a tail and fox ears. They'll imprison her and execute her because she's supposedly possessed by the devil. So the church is is you, you're told, like, by, I think, like, the second episode, you're told that the church is a threat and a problem. And then you spend most of the show kind of, A, avoiding the church or skirting around it very intentionally. And then by the end of the, of the first season, and by the end of the second season, too, you have... Essentially schemes and plots and stuff that involve basically defrauding the church in the first in the first season. I don't remember about the second season because there's this there's this underbelly of Religion to Doubt, a kind of modernizing of technique. And a modernizing of skill and an advancement of skill in ways that people, at least in the area regionally, have never seen before. So you meet a character I think named Chloe. I think the character name is Chloe, and she's a shepherd. Which in medieval times, shepherds used to herd sheep from like point to point from village to village and they used to be employed by the church to do so and it's like a symbolic thing and all this stuff but eventually shepherds die because their flock is attacked by wolves or they or they are attacked by bandits and the sheep are killed and shorn like a, it's a cru, it's a cruel it's a cruel thing to do to a person but eventually, that that's what happens. And so when Chloe isn't ever punished for, isn't ever punished by the natural world, because, not just because she's lucky, but because she's extremely good at her job, and, like, her, her guard dog is, like, an incredible guard dog. Holo says it as much. She is so good, the church doubts that she is human, essentially. she The church doubts that she is not a pagan witch. And what that means in practice is they keep sending her on more and more dangerous routes. Instead of sending her on a safe route from between the town where she's based and the town where they want... She, a uh, sheep delivered, they send her on the most dangerous route. And this is a common fucked up thing that the church used to do is they used to say the way they tested if someone was a witch was one of the reasons why they burned them at the stake was they would if they didn't burn, they were a witch and then they would kill them anyway. If they did burn, they were human and their souls were accepted by God. Also meant that those people weren't allowed to live anymore. Another common um, thing they used to do was they would tie the person a sack and throw them in the river. And if they floated, they were a witch. If they drowned, they were um they were human and their souls were accepted by God. Also, once again, they were dead and. This also really only happened to women. That's a key point. It's like this was not a thing that happened to men it, often, if at all, from what I understand. If a man was found traveling with a witch willingly, they were considered to have been brainwashed and like educated and all this other stuff. But the but the woman would be punished and. So here you have this character, Chloe, who is exceptionally good at her job. So good, in fact, that her employer, the church, that does not pay her very well, they make a point of saying, has said, we're going to continue to test you, continue to put you in more and more dangerous situations, and she continues to get out of those situations ...without a scratch on her. Not because she isn't afraid... ...not because she isn't... ...human... ...but because she's extremely good at her job. And they make a point of showing that... ...in like the final arc of the show... ...when they're surrounded by wolves... ...and she straight up is like... ...we need... ...like I'm sorry... ...but we need to move faster. And... ...Lawrence is like... ...why are we... ...why are we hustling so hard? And... Holo takes the time and t- takes the time to basically explain wolf logic to her and be like, "Wolf won't attack you unless they can completely surround you because they won't attack as a singular wolf if they can avoid it. They will attack as a group because that's how they know they'll survive." And that the fact that Chloe got there so instinctively was a proof of the fact that she. She's not a witch. She's not some sort of pagan magic user. She is simply very, very good at what she does. And she's being punished for it over and over again. That's part of the reason why she takes place in this scheme is because she wants to get back at the church. Because the church has essentially underpaid her and like been screwing with her for Years, who knows how many years by the time you see her. And that's where the show goes in its second season. But also where the show goes kind of constantly is Lawrence and... Sounds in my face. uh, Lawrence and Holo's like issue of we can't let too many people know that Holo, Holo is essentially a wolf girl is a wolf girl because they will report her to the church and then we'll be on the run and it will be bad. And the last kind of pillar of the, the third pillar of this is Holo and Lawrence's relationship. And what that means is it, they have this kind of coy relationship at first. And this is why I would say those my second gripe with the show comes in. Around, I want to say, maybe episode eight, they... They, like, decide to make that into a full-blown romantic scenario. Or but, or at the very least budding romantic scenario. But they very clearly have to, like, turn on his heels because it almost feels like they forgot about it. And... But from there, it's like, it's an enjoyable relationship between a really, between someone who is much older than they look, but is like very emotionally immature and someone who is much younger than they look. But, and like, very, what's the best word for it? Very aware, but doesn't care as much as they maybe could or should. And there's this, this kind of like truth about relation, truth and reality about relationships that this show presents in the fact that they are, they, they express their they express their caring for each other through arguing like cats and dogs, hilariously, and the they do a really good job of making a relationship that they then start to pay off in with, like, huge... in, like, huge ways and much more traditionally anime-like ways in the second season, like, in the first episode of the second season. I'm not kidding. Of, like, Holo is, like, a lovesick puppy at one point. And... They... The way they started this show off from with Holo and with, and with Lawrence, is they started the show off with these two characters who are, for all intents and purposes, alone in the world for various reasons. For Holo, it is this, it, it is this loss of purpose and this loss of, like the contract with the village that she's cared... that she's genuinely cared for for decades. For, for generations on top of that, actually. And for Lawrence, it's... this life as a kind of almost mercenary-like... trader. And he... he him, his horse, his cart, and his wagon... Are just making deals, and he's try and he's supposedly trying to get enough money together in order to, in order to be in order to, be able to open a shop and settle down. When he makes the deal with Holo, that gets A put on hold, but B, he starts to have a reason to like care about consequences of things in a way that he didn't. Because Holo, like, mostly cares about eating things and being right. And Holo adds enough of a wrinkle to his life, as he does to hers, where he starts to ask himself moral questions, and he, and he seems like a... she. She refers to it as ...good-natured in a way that you would refer to Goody Two-Shoes... ...which makes sense... Um, ...and she... ...just... ...doesn't... ...like they don't... They, w- ...they do things together that they wouldn't have done... ...in the same situation if it was just one of them... ...because Lawrence... ...wants to be a better person... And wants to like take takes the idea of like yes I want to make money but I want to make money in a way that's less mercenary like because I feel I need to because I feel I want to be a better person for the person who's sitting next to me constantly in this carriage and Holo wants to help him ultimately and wants and and they both care for each other deeply. And so what ends up happening is they end up, like, really making this whole thing that they've got going on work with each other and work for anybody who gets involved with them as long as they don't cross them. And ultimately, if they do have a character like the, um, head, of the trading mer- head of the trading guild who buys um, Lawrence's bad deck at at the end of the first season, they they don't crush, like, he never wants to crush people. But he does want to make them, like, hurt for underestimating him, or trying to take advantage of him. And what you learn, what you learn by the end of the second season, you go into, what you learn by the end of the first season, rather, you go into the second season understanding is that no one except for the monolith of the church is in a stable place. In a completely stable place, rather. So. <sighs> the church kind of becomes the villain by the end of the show. By the end of the first season. If there is one, really. Because even the villain of the last arc is this is this guy who's trying to restockpile money because he ran his like his business went bad on him. And between the very between the very first big arc of the show, which has to do with silver coins, and the last arc of the show, which has to do with arms, two things that should be stable. Should be like kind of impressively, permanently stable. You get this understanding that, like, being a merchant in this world and also being a normal person in this world is not a very fair existence. And that, like, the pagan village that Holo came from, that Lawrence visited all the time, um, I think it was called Han's Village, maybe, um, was probably better off with, like, praying to a deity they weren't sure existed... and that resulting in them being a pretty prosperous village, all, all all, said. But because they were a prosperous village who, like, lied outside of the church, the church's sphere of influence, they could only ever be so profitable. And, I, like, this show is really using all of this background dressing... To tell you a kind of like sweet, fun, cute love story between a wolf girl and a guy, but it's all worth considering, and it's all pretty interesting. And it does the thing that shows like this do when they're concerned with their quality with their quality, and not just telling the single story. In that they're there, there for. Just about anything and everything that matters. While I would have liked a better explanation for like why the market for arms basically evaporated inside a couple inside a couple days, while Lawrence and Holo were on the were on the road, that's mostly because they took you so in depth on this on one of the on the first or second um, big arc of the show which is this thing about silver coins about silver coins from different areas with different amounts of silver in them therefore they were more or less valuable and they set up this very plausible very understandable like money exchange scheme that this that a, noble, that a noble house was engaging in basically to save its own ass. And that, that kind of resolution was so specific to that whole scheme and that whole scheme working that it was pretty incredible. So I was, just, I was really surprised when they were like, and the market for arms is just gone because and it, this is probably the show's biggest flaw is that it it's this slow meandering pace like almost fairy tale like thing that has something to do with economics at certain t- that that always keeps economics on like the back burner that it really only has one way to manipulate it's story to, like, force conflict. And that's when it, like, brings economics back out in front and says, like, we're going to use this to create drama. And I, th- I think it's more than good enough to, like, withstand that. I just wish that if they were going to do that, they would do it, like, the first time they do it and not, like, the second time. because, the- and, and not, like, the last time in the first season. Because... I think those stories can be interesting and the, and you can have a almost like hilariously um big short like effect in addition to this like heartwarming tale between of love between two people. And on that note, if you like this episode um, definitely subscribe to the podcast. It's available wherever you are listening to me right now. And new episodes come out every Thursday and Sunday. Thursday is more like this. It's about a specific show or movie or property. And Sundays are more metatextual. I will be talking about the Funimation Crunchyroll merger thing on Sunday. Mark my words. So tune in if you want to hear that. But until then... I've been Alex and anti capitalist Alex will see you on Sunday. Bye.
1: Seven up on the witch's tree, with seven sheets to plant in.